Well, we're in Romans chapter 8, and um, continuing, and um, really, we're probably just going to continue this text right through Good Friday and Easter um, as well, because it all fits pretty nicely, actually, so. Um, but today, I want to continue with our, our message, if God is for us, who can be against us, and this is what would be part two, but just in way of uh, review, and let's just read the text together. Um, we'll just read verses uh, uh, thirty, beginning in thirty-one, Romans chapter eight. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring? Any charge against God's elect, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Last week, when we looked at this text, I began by looking at five unanswerable questions there in the text. The first one you see there in verse 31 if God is for us, who can be against us? Um, the first question there, you say, well, why don't you include verse, the very first thought, what shall we say to these things? Because it's kind of a trans, transitional question. Paul just shared with us all this incredible doctrine in the previous verses. And as he does a lot of times, uh, he'll say, now what does this mean? Or so what? <laughs> How do we apply this? And uh, so that's the first question he he asks his listeners. If God is for us, who can be against us? And then verse 32, he asks the second question. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And that refers back to verse 28. He's not talking about cars and lands and, and uh, jobs and happy families. He's talking about what he referred to in verse 28 where he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for, for good. And then in verse 33, he asks the third question, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Fourth question, verse 34, who is to condemn? And then the fifth question, which we didn't read today, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Um, last week, we, we looked basically at three truths that Paul talked about in persevering in faith, that we need to be focused on God's great love as we see in the gift of his son. And the first point we looked at last week was the truth of God's sovereignty in saving us demands a response from us of worship and total submission. That's what's demanded of us. That's why Paul says, what shall we say to these things? Uh, the second point we looked at last week was the truth that God is for us is in the gospel. In the gospel means that we must evaluate all opposition and difficulties in the light of God's grace. And that's what he asked there in verse 31. If God is for us, who is against us? And we talked about three steps 
to uh, evaluate your critics, make sure that God is for you, examine your heart by asking whether God could be using your opponent, even though he may be critical, uh, to show you something, a blind spot or a shortcoming. And then the third thing, after you've honestly taken the first two steps, don't take the attacks against you personally. So when you deal with critics, that was a good three points to make. And then the third point that Paul made was the truth that God has done the greatest thing for us in sacrificing his own son means that he will supply with us with all that is needed for life and godliness. You know, it's amazing to me how many Christians today are constantly praying prayers to God that I call um, prayers of ignorance. (laughs) They ask God for more love. God, give me more love for this. God has said that he has shed abroad in your hearts the love of Christ. There's no more love to be had. You just have to utilize the love that God has already given you. And there's a lot of things sometimes that we pray for that if we really believed that God supplied us with everything that is needed for life and godliness, we probably wouldn't wouldn't be spending time on our knees praying for those things. Because God says, well, you already have them in Christ. You're sufficient in Christ. My word is sufficient for you. It's amazing to me even today, I mean, that, that so many modern day Christians, they look everywhere for help. They look everywhere for counsel. Other than God's word. <laughs> They'll go to all kinds of people and talk to them about their problems. But they forget that they have a God that has supplied them with everything they need to live the Christian life that he's called them to live. And we need to be reminded of that sometimes. Because it's very easy for the world to suck you in. And sometimes we're listening to a counsel that has no bearing at all. It should have no bearing at all on our lives as Christians because it's coming from a source that is outside of Christ. And you have to be careful, even with Christian counseling today. There's a lot of counseling going on in the name of Christ that is nothing more than pop psychology. Kind of thrown, throw a couple verses in there. But God bless you at the end of the session. See you next week. That would be $150, please. We, we need to be aware of those things. Um, see, God has done the greatest thing imaginable for us. We looked at this last week as well. By sacrificing his own son. He did everything he could for us. And we talked about the death of Christ. We said that the Christ's death was not ultimately a humanly caused tragedy you know we're coming up on passion week we're coming up on good friday we're coming up on easter resurrection sunday and there's people all over the world beloved that are taking hard rough freshly sawn crosses of wood and placing them upon their bare backs and marching miles thinking that somehow this is pleasing to god There are people that are crawling on their knees for miles, their knees bloodied. There are people who are receiving lashes. There are even people who are literally being crucified 
in some countries this time of the year. Literally nailed to a cross, thinking somehow that earns them favor with God. When God gave us his son, it wasn't so much the physical aspect of his suffering. When you watch The Passion of the Christ, it's a very moving film. I'll give them that. They did a very good job at portraying what happened physically to Christ. The only sad thing is they left out the whole spiritual point. So you have people all over the world thinking that somehow, boy, poor Jesus, look at what they did to this poor guy. How horrible. Those evil men, look at what they did. And they forget, and we're going to be talking a little bit about this on Good Friday, they forget the source of all that suffering was not the evil men that surrounded Christ. It was his father. His father put him on that cross. It was predetermined in eternity past what Christ would go through. And far much more than the physical suffering that Christ went through, stop and think of the spiritual suffering for the first time in all of eternity God, the Father, turned his back on his Son. What does that mean? I don't understand that. How does the Trinity turn its back on the Trinity? I don't know. But he did. And that was far more painful than anything physically Christ went through. We also said that Christ's death was substitutionary. And it says there that he gave him, Jesus gave himself for us all. But the next point was that Christ's death was particular. It was personal. It was effectual. It was for those whom were, who were elected before the foundation of the world. Somehow there's, there's, there's belief going around today that, that, that Jesus died for the, the whole world. That he paid the sins of everybody and it's up to the people to kind of figure this out and then eventually come to them and make some profession of faith or put their faith in Jesus or trust in Jesus or find God or whatever you want to call it. That's not what the Bible says salvation is. This, uh, the Bible says that before in eternity past, God set his love on us. Particularly, individually. When Christ died on the cross, he died for all those who would ever put their faith and trust in Christ. Well, who are those? Those who are elect before the foundation of the world. It's very clear. You know, we like to try to take some credit. Even sometimes when we give our testimonies, we have to be careful of this. I remember sharing my testimony and Wednesday night pastor was sharing out of Romans, kind of the Romans road plan of salvation. And he kept on saying, all have sinned. And I kept on saying, I'm not like my brothers. They sinned. Yeah, I don't do that. Those kind of things. He kept on saying, all have sinned, all have sinned. He must, I mean, we probably talked about that verse for an hour. And it wasn't that finally I figured out what all have sinned meant. I mean, I was a little slow, but I wasn't stupid. I mean, all have sinned means all have sinned, right? I mean, I didn't need to parse the, the original language or have him do that or go through some gymnastics grammatically. I mean, when you say all have sinned, that means everybody. But you know what? My, my feeble mind could not understand that truth. And it wasn't until God quickened 
my mind and my, my spirit to understand that, you know what? This was an indictment upon my very soul that I needed to come to Christ, that I needed salvation. Because although I may not have been as bad as my brothers, I was never going to meet the mark that God, the standard that God had put up. Because that standard is one of perfection. Jesus told people, you want to, you want to, you want the kingdom? Well, you then, how good do you have to be? You have to be perfect. You have to be perfect like my father's perfect. I mean, try doing that. Try doing that for a day. Try doing that for an hour. Maybe a half hour. 15 minutes? A minute? I mean, we, we fail miserably in thought, deed, word, whatever it might be. And I thank God every time that God set my heart apart in eternity past so that one day, yes, I would choose Christ. See, that's the dynamic. It's not like you go to bed one night and you wake up the next morning, you're a Christian, and you don't know what happened to you. It doesn't happen that way. God somehow interweaves our volition and he moves in our heart to take the scales off our eyes so that we can, for the first time, see the truth that's before us and be convicted of our sin. And we realize that, wow, now we need a Savior. Who do we run to? Well, there's only one Savior. There's only one name in heaven and earth whereby we must be saved. That's the name, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, and he's provided all that for us. And that's why the last point was that Christ's death was a supreme demonstration of God's love and grace for us as sinners. Well, today, I want to move on. Because even though God has graciously given us this, this, this supply to meet everything that we need in life and godliness... We want to ask this question. He says, basically in verse 33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. See, Paul knew that his readers were asking questions, in their mind at least. And so this third unanswerable question rises to the surface. I mean, think about it. The truth behind the first great question is that God is, is for us. Therefore, who can be against us? The truth in the second question is that God has already given us the best gift that he could ever possibly give. Therefore, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things that we need in our Christian life? Well, what is the truth behind this third question? The truth behind this third question clearly is, he answers it, it's God that justifies. No charge can be brought against those whom God has chosen if God, the supreme judge of the entire universe, has acquitted them. Another way to think about it is this. In the first question, we're reminded that in God we have a champion. In the second question, we're reminded that in God we have a benefactor. In the third question, we are reminded that in God we have a judge. 
Now, I don't know about you, but when you hear the word judge, <laughs> a lot of people don't like that. They don't like that word. The very word triggers feelings of anxiety. Here comes the judge. <laughs> you got to go before the judge. And when we think of God as the supreme judge, and the fact that, you know what, one day we must stand before him. I don't know about you, but our souls are rightly troubled. They're distressed. Martin Luther, the great reformer, captured this anxiety, this fear, in one of the greatest hymns he wrote. He wrote this, Great God, what do I see and hear? The end of things created. The judge of mankind doth appear on clouds of glory seated. The trumpet sounds, the graves restore. The dead which they contained before prepare my soul to meet him. The question this morning, are you prepared to meet the judge? Not a local judge, but the supreme judge. See, in the society we live in, beloved, a lot of us, because of all the, the media, all the cultural energy, um, there's a lot of energy spent dispelling feelings of anxiety, dispelling feelings of guilt. And so we get distracted, and we don't like to think about that final judgment day. I don't know about you, but when I lay my head on my pillow at night, I don't like to think about one day I'm going to be standing before a holy God and be held accountable for everything. I don't like that. <laughs> That's not something that I'm going to go to sleep and have happy thoughts with. And so what do we do? We numb ourselves and we entertain ourselves with hours and hours of frantic activity. And we're seduced by pop psychology and self-help programs. But you know what? Even with all that noise and stuff, even in the quietest of moments when we get away and we just stop and we think, even our subconscious thoughts surface to remind us that we are not able to do what we should be doing. That we have willed to go astray like the sheep like the lost prodigal son. But one day, one day, the word says that there will be an accounting. And, and that disturbing realization, I remember a, a song by Billy Joel. It's captured in his, in his song, actually. It's called Somewhere Along the Line. And the last sentence says this. Hey, it's good to be a young man and to live the way you please. Yes, a young man is the king of every kingdom that he sees. But there's an old and feeble man not far behind. Oh, that surely will catch up to him somewhere along the line. See, beloved, one day our actions, our thoughts, our words... We'll be held account. And because of that accountability, sometimes there can be an overwhelming sense of guilt in our lives, even as Christians. 
And see, in these verses today, in verses 33 and 34 that we're going to touch on today, God gives us an answer for that guilt. The answer isn't pretend it's not there. The answer isn't try to make it go away. I remember looking at a little cartoon in a Sunday paper years ago, and it pictured a psychologist talking to this patient. And there he was laying on the couch, and the psychologist had his glasses on and his little notebook open. And he said, sir, I think I can explain your feelings of guilt. You're guilty. I mean, this isn't rocket science, okay? I mean, you know, we kind of chuckle at that. But we understand, before God, we're all guilty of violating at least his two great commandments which sum up all the other commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. I mean, we sing that song, but you know what? We can't do that. We've all failed to love God with our entire being. And and even what's worse, I think that at times we deliberately shove him aside and we replace him with something that is more kind of adaptable to our own lifestyle, our our little gods, as I'll call it. And because we're selfish, we've failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so we all have this, this true, you might call it moral guilt before a holy God in this universe. Well, how do you deal with that kind of guilt? Many suppress it, many deny it. Others try to excuse their guilt Like I did for many years before I came to Christ. I have my faults, but you know what? I'm basically a pretty good person. I'm not as bad as them. I've never really deliberately hurt anyone. However, we may try to get rid of our guilty feelings, beloved. One truth is there's still this stubborn fact that we stand truly guilty of sin before God. And God knows every wrong thought. God knows every wrong deed, every wrong word that we've ever done. And so God's answer for our guilt is not to suppress it or to try to find a way around it. God's answer for our guilt is simply, you know what? The cross of Jesus Christ. That's the answer. Because on the cross of Christ, that's where Christ bore the punishment that we deserve. See, we're going to be talking more about this in the coming weeks. God's answer for our guilt is the cross of Christ. It wasn't an accident that Jesus died on a cross. It wasn't some plan that went horribly wrong. But that's what we tend to think. We think somehow in the Garden of Eden way back when, that when when Adam and Eve sinned, that God was frantic. I don't know what to do. Wringing his hands in heaven. Finally tapped Jesus on the shoulder and said, okay, you're the man. Go for it. See if you can pull this off. No. That's not the kind of plan that God would devise. This was put into place in all eternity past before there ever even was a Garden of Eden or even was an Adam and Eve. As God in human flesh, Jesus Christ came down and his sacrifice satisfied God's holy wrath against our sin. Romans 3, 26 says that God could be both the just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul Washer preached a wonderful message. You can get it on the shepherds.com, shepherdsconference.com website. It'll be up there probably within a couple days. It was one of the, I think it was on Friday he preached a message. And I sat there and I thought, oh, great. I'm going to preach on this thing on Sunday. <laughs> Don't even feel able to do it after hearing him preach. So that's your homework assignment. Go on there and listen to his message. It'll blow you away, literally. But because Christ paid our debt, Paul proclaimed there in verse 1 of chapter 8, therefore there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But even though Paul has made this wonderful truth crystal clear, he knew without a shadow of a doubt that somehow guilt can, can kind of come in, can creep into our lives. And you know what? It can really become a problem for believers. There's some commentators that, that write in their commentary, and he doesn't say this here in, in, in the text, but some commentators believe that maybe Paul was thinking in the back of his mind. Maybe he was feeling guilty. I mean, he was the one that was out killing Christians. <laughs> right? I mean, as a Pharisee, that's what he was doing. Maybe he was remembering the faces and the names of the people that he had, had arrested and, and beaten and persecuted. Perhaps he could still see the face of Stephen just before he died with his head bloodied from the stones. It's in Acts chapter 7, verse 60. Stephen cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And Paul, thinking he was doing the right thing for his religion of ridding the world of these radical Christian people. See, whether Paul was thinking of those shameful events from his past or not, He knew that even those who have trusted in Christ for salvation often have to wrestle with guilt. And sometimes it may not be a recent sin, it may be a distant sin. Let me tell you something here this morning, beloved. Guilty Christians are not joyous Christians. Guilty Christians are not joyous Christians. I've been there, done that. I've been around people. And I'm telling you, they're not joyous Christians. They cannot enjoy the close fellowship with the Savior. They cannot be bold in their witness. They cannot confidently disciple others. They usually end up living as hypocrites, putting up a front in fear that the truth about their sin will be exposed one day. And so Paul here, he applies... The benefits of the gospel that he summed up here in verses 29 and 30. And he asked these two parallel questions. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And who is the one who condemns? And he doesn't tell us anything new. It's not like he's giving us new truth there. He's just rehashing the truths he's already hammered home for us. But he wants us to know that God's answer to guilt... So that we can win the battle when guilt attacks us. God's answer to guilt is simply this. That he justifies his elect through Christ's mediation on our behalf. God says, I know you're going to have guilt. Paul knew it. So he 
put this down here and he says, you know what, you have to focus on he and understand that God justifies his elect through Christ's mediation on our behalf. Well, let's look at some of the things that charge us with guilt as believers. First, the world, the devil, and our consciences seek to condemn us with guilt continually, 24-7. They don't take a break. The world charges us of being guilty of hypocrisy, intolerance, self-righteousness, and a whole host of other sins. I mean, how many times when you have invited somebody to church, have they, the answer was, oh, you know, I don't go to church. The church is full of hypocrites. They're not wrong in that statement, beloved. I mean, sometimes we get offended, but they're actually speaking the truth. And it's good to answer someone who says that, yes. But what will you do with the claims of Christ? Don't you be worrying about the people sitting next to you. What are you going to do about the claims of Christ? See, we're all prone, I think, at times to put up a false front. Because we're afraid that people will see us for what we really are. What we're really like. I mean, it's not that it's deliberate. I mean, maybe we don't go around deliberately deceiving others. But at the same time, we don't correct their misconceptions of us. (laughs) I remember being with someone years ago in the hospital and their loved one was dying and went and paid respects and had a word of prayer. And I remember afterwards the the wife was out in the hallway saying to me, Pastor, thank you so much for coming. I know what a man of prayer you are. I didn't have the boldness nor the desire, nor was it probably the place to tell that poor wife of her dying husband, man of prayer? You gotta be kidding me. (laughs) Me? I mean, I struggle, I often fail at being faithful in the area of prayer. Doesn't mean I don't want to. Doesn't mean I don't try. Doesn't mean I don't believe in prayer. But you know what? Sometimes you just get busy. And you get distracted. And your mind gets focused on other things. And when you should be spending time on your knees, you're cleaning out gutters or you're painting something or you're fixing a sink or you're trying to cram another study in for something. So I'm guilty of hypocrisy. I think we all would be. So unbelievers also frequently accuse us of intolerance and and, and self-righteousness. We're closed-minded. We're judgmental. 
I mean, sometimes we think that we're right and everybody else is wrong. We say that our way is the only way to heaven, and it is through Christ. But we need to be careful how we communicate with those who have yet to come to Christ. Kind of like the people in the video. I mean, they, were, they, they couldn't see the forest through the trees. Sometimes the charges are true. And inwardly, we, we feel the guilt. So the world charges us of hypocrisy and intolerance and self-righteousness. And you know what? So be it. It's true sometimes. Secondly, the devil also charges us as guilty when we fall short of God's holiness. Um, I want to say this morning, it's Christians whom Satan, I believe, particularly accuses. He's already got the unbelievers. He doesn't want to awaken them to their sins, so he's good enough to let them just go to hell. (laughs) But if you're a Christian... If you've trusted in the blood of Christ for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins, trust me, Satan is accusing you before God. Did you see what he just did? She just did? That's no way for a Christian to act. That act was disgraceful, ungodly, secular. How can a person do that and still claim to be a Christian? How can you regard him or her as one of your followers? Do you see what she's thinking about right now? Her thoughts are unworthy. Aren't you ashamed of his or her conduct? Satan is saying things like, I wouldn't have those people as my followers. How can you accept them? How can you have sent your son to die for a lot like that? What does the word Satan mean? Satan means adversary. Devil literally means one who throws things against you. And Satan is making such accusations day and night, according to the book of Revelation. Revelation 12, 10, the accuser of the brother who accuses them before our God day and night. Job 1 and 2 give us an example where Satan accuses Job before the Lord of being righteous only so that he could enjoy God's benefits. A blessing and protection. You know the story. There's another example in Zechariah 3.1. It says this, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. It goes on to say how Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, that he was guilty as charged. See, there's debate over whether some people believe that Satan can come in inject somehow evil thoughts into our minds. I don't necessarily believe that. I think we do well enough by ourselves on that. We have a conscience. We know when we do wrong. 
But whether that's the case or not, he is definitely accusing us constantly. And sometimes, you know what? You just can't shake off those accusations. You can't just shake off those feelings of guilt. Even after you've repented and you've confessed your sin to the Lord, the guilt is still there. And the guilt is paralyzing you in your Christian walk, in your Christian faith. And I think, personally, at certain times, that's not necessarily the Holy Spirit convicting you at that stage. If you've responded to his conviction and you've repented of your sin and you've turned from it and you're living your Christian life and you're still bearing the guilt of something you've done before that's covered by the blood of Christ, that's, that's not the Holy Spirit bringing that to your mind. Somehow Satan is, is convicting you. You're under attack from the accuser of the brethren. And we need to understand, beloved, that we need to put him to flight. Thirdly, our conscience charges us with guilt. Our own conscience. Because we know we've sinned. And we put up a, a front for other people and sometimes we fool them. We get them to thinking that we're somehow better or nicer or smarter than we are. But we don't fool ourselves very well. We know what our thoughts are in those secret moments, the lust, the anger, the lies, the blasphemous ideas that we harbor within. We all know that. We may even learn how to dull them, but we can't escape them. See, this is what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. He spoke of the final judgment day and how even the thoughts of the heathen, the heathen accuse them. He says in verse 12, For all have sinned, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. There it is. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day. When according to my gospel, Paul writes, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Someone has called our, our conscience a false, false alarm. F-A-U-L-T-S. It goes off to let us know our own faults. <laughs> The conscience by itself, though, I just want to tell you, is not a reliable guide. Sometimes it can be overly sensitive. Some with a, a weak conscience feel guilty over things that the Bible doesn't even label as sins. Producing false guilt. Talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7 to 12. Or sometimes a believer agonizes over something that is a sin... 
but he blows it way out of proportion. And unfortunately, on the other hand, some have calloused their hearts and have insensitive or seared consciences. The Bible speaks of that in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 19 and 1 Timothy 4, 2. And this is a person who feels no guilt, even though he is disobeying the clear commands of God's word. In some cases, some people are ignorant of God's commands. Their consciences are untrained by the word of God. See, the Bible teaches that it's important to maintain a good conscience, especially before the Lord. And and we can't, we have to stop relabeling things. We live in a society today where they, where they relabel everything to make it kind of dumbed down so it's not as offensive. If the Bible calls something a sin, beloved, we should call it a sin. If the Bible does not call something a sin, then we don't need to call it a sin either. We just need to be clear on both sides of that issue. But even mature believers who have biblically sensitive consciences sometimes will have sometimes when their consciences say you're guilty you sin maybe we did something that we know to be wrong or we didn't do something that we know that we should do well how do you answer these charges well it's not only the world and i left this i didn't put this one in there i just was reading this morning and I thought I should include this as a really a, a fourth way that we are guilty. It's not just the world, our own conscience, or even Satan that really troubles us. I don't know about you, but the thing that troubles me the most is that one day I have to stand before God. <laughs> I have to stand before someone who knows everything, has always known everything. I have to stand before someone before whom all hearts are going to be opened, all desires known. That troubles me. Luther dealt with that distress in the days before he came to understand the gospel. And he rejoiced in what God had done for him through Christ. He he, he writes, he says, he used to tremble asking himself, how can I stand before God in the day of his judgment? See, the wisdom of his age in the religions of his day said that he could stand before God by his good works. That's a lie from the pit of hell. But, said Luther, what works can come from a heart like mine? How can I stand before the holiness of my judge with works polluted In their very source. Have you never thought that way? Have you never trembled at the thought that one day you would stand before a most holy God? As I said earlier, it's possible you never thought about that. Because we don't like to think about things like that. We get ourselves busy with other things. But if you've never thought that, if you've never trembled in your soul that one day you're going to have to stand before a holy God, 
God help you? How can we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ if you have never trembled under the law? How can you be comforted by the text that we're reading here this morning if you've never seen a need to be saved from sin by Jesus Christ, to be justified by God on the basis of Christ's atonement on the cross and gifted with righteousness that you don't deserve? Well, secondly here, not only do we first need to really confess this, our consciences seek to condemn us with guilt, but secondly, back your outline, after confession, answer charges of condemnation with God's promise to justify his elect through Christ's mediation on your behalf. In other words, not all guilt is, is wrong, even as a Christian. If we're guilty, so be it. But after you've confessed, and those guilt, guilty feelings still paralyze you, what we need to do is we need to stop and say, wait a minute. What has God promised me? How has God justified me as one of his elect? Through Christ's mediation on my behalf. And Paul lines up here basically three lines of defense for the believer. First of all, he says, if you are truly guilty, what you need to do is confess your sin and turn from it. Amen? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, some argue that since God has forgiven us of all of our sins and removed all of our guilt at the cross, we should never feel guilty again. Even if we sin. And we don't have to confess our sins. We don't have to ask God for forgiveness. It's a done deal. We just kind of move on. That's out of balance. Are our sins forgiven? Yes. If we're in Christ, all of our sins are forgiven. We don't need to go before God and beg him for more forgiveness. But we do need to go to God and confess that sin or those sins and say the same thing that God says about them. Why? Because that brings him glory. That brings him honor. Once again, that's showing God, you know what? We're not able to do this on our own. It's showing us that, you know what? When we, we get out of the, the, the realm of the Holy Spirit's power in our life and we start doing things in the flesh, the Bible calls that sin. And so when we end up there, we need to go back to God and confess that. We need to say, God, sorry, I, I blew it again. And thank him for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. I mean, it's true that our eternal standing before God is secure through the blood of Christ. But at the same time, if we love the Savior who gave himself up for us on the cross, beloved, when we grieve him by sinning, which we do, we should feel grief. And that grief should prompt us to confess our sin, to acknowledge his forgiveness, to turn from it. See, it's not a matter of our standing before God, but rather of our relationship with him. Just because your child disobeys you, that doesn't make him not your child, even though sometimes you wish that were the case. He's still your child. He's still your son. He's still your daughter. It doesn't matter how much he screams at the top of the lungs, whatever he says, to try to offend you as the parent. doesn't matter. It's not going to change that, that standing of, of son 
and father or daughter and mother. But the relationship may not be exactly what it is. Till there's some confession, till there's some reconciliation. We need to be reminded of that. Be careful, even as believers, because sometimes I think we're prone to respond to our guilt by blaming others. <laughs> or by denying it. Or by excusing it. Or, or by covering up some sin. I mean, one of the most common issues that couples have in marriages. We all have them. We just need to stop blaming each other and excusing our own sins in light of the other person's. Just need to stop. One of the most common mistakes that Christian parents make is to not humble themselves and ask for forgiveness of their children when they sin against them. See, if you don't do that as a parent, unless you're a perfect parent, which there are none, your kids are going to see the hypocrisy. And you know what? That's going to be a turnoff as far as the faith that you have and you want to give to them. But we have to own up to our own sin. When you as a Christian sin against an unbeliever, go to them. Acknowledge your sin. Humbly ask for forgiveness. That speaks volumes to them. I mean, don't just, you know, don't try to use the the occasion to, to, to witness to him or to point out the sin in his life. If you're acknowledging your own sin, maybe offended him or whatever, just confess the sin and make restitution and move on. That's going to be adequate enough witness. The second thing here under B there, answer charges of condemnation with the fact of God's sovereign election. Who will bring a charge, Paul asks, against God's elect? Look at what he says there. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? I was reading that and I thought, I wonder why he didn't say, who will bring a charge against believers in Christ? Or who will bring a charge against this or that? No, he's very particular. He says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Why did he bring up election? We've already been through this. Paul emphasized election because when you're feeling guilty over your sin, you're prone to doubt your faith in Christ. He knew that. I don't know about you, but that's very real for me. You begin to doubt your faith. You begin to doubt your worthiness. You begin, pretty soon you're not even coming to church because you don't feel worthy. Serve, I can't serve, man. My life's a mess. I feel guilty, guilty, guilty. You start thinking, well, maybe I'm not a believer. How could a true believer do what I just did? Maybe I'm not even saved. Let me say this. If salvation rests on your faith, if salvation rests on your choice of Christ, you're going to have a whole lot of trouble when you start to sin. <laughs> it's, going to, it's going to rattle your cage. If the accuser can get you to focus 
on your feeble faith, he's going to condemn you every time. But what does he say here? God's elect. What's that say? In a word, it says basically that, that the root cause of your salvation is not you. It's God. It's God who justifies. It's really coming down out there. Praise the Lord. We need the rain. See, we, we need to change our thinking about this, beloved. If you've been saved by God through the work of Jesus Christ, you are among those whom God has chosen. It's done. And that's why when Paul says here, who will bring any charge against God's elect? He doesn't say who's going to bring a charge against sinners. Because there are sinners whose sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And there are sinners, unfortunately, whose sins are not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And in the latter case there, not only are the charges made by their own consciences, by Satan and by God himself, but if you haven't trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior and your sins are not forgiven by the blood of Christ, you know what? Those charges stick. They stick. I mean, what Paul is saying here is how could anyone possibly bring any lasting or prevailing charge against such persons who have been foreknown by God, predestined by God, called by God, justified by God, glorified by God? Who's going to bring the charge? Who is it? Because it's God himself who has justified us. If we have been saved by God, who can possibly overturn God's judgment? Yeah, I understand you chose to believe in Christ. But the reason you did so was because the Bible says that he first chose you. If he had not done so, if he had not chosen you, you would have happily gone down the merry path of sin. See, election, beloved, does not mean that God looked and saw down through the quarters of time the reaction you would have, and one day you would believe, so he chose you on that basis. If that were the case, then it would not be according to, by grace you have been saved, but you would be saved by a work called faith. Your faith would be a work that you originated and that you could take credit for. And last time I checked, the Bible says, no, 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 no. (laughs) We're saved because God first chose us. How do we know if we're elect? Maybe my sin shows that I'm not one of the elect. I think it's true, a a lifestyle of disobedience and sin should show us something, make us question, make sure that we're in the faith, make sure of our calling, make sure that our election is sure. 
But just words of comfort. First John chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, the one that says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. I mean, John is very clear that God's elect people cannot just be content to continue to live on in a lifestyle of sin. Ask yourself these questions. Has God changed your life? Has God changed your heart? Has he shown you the guilt and sin and a desperate need for a savior? And you have abandoned all of your trust in your good works to save yourself. Then you acknowledge that he has given you the faith to believe in Christ as your only hope for heaven. Has he given you a love for him and his word and a hatred for sin? Are you growing in conformity to Christ? Are you becoming more Christ-like? I mean, we all have tons of room to do these things more and grow in a lot of different areas. But the overall emphasis of our life in Christ should be, be one that we're becoming more and more like him. If we're one of his elect. Thirdly there, see, answer charges of condemnation with God's promise to justify the ungodly by grace alone through faith alone. When you feel charges of condemnation and guilt, stop and realize that God has already promised to justify us, the ungodly, by grace, through faith alone. God is the one who justifies See, Paul does not mention here that we are justified by faith. He doesn't say that. Rather, in answer to the the charges against God's elect, he emphasizes God's action. In other words, it's not you doing it. It's God who's justifying you. We're going to learn more about this next week. We're going to learn more about how God justifies us. Why God justifies us. And what that means for our salvation. Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ. Maybe you've. Think that somehow you're a pretty good person. Well the Bible says something different. And either you acknowledge the truth of God's word or you don't. I can't help you with that. That's something you're going to have to grapple with. God's going to have to open your eyes to the truth of his word. But his truth does say that all have sinned and fall short of his glory. There's not one person in this room nor the world who has never, ever sinned. There was only one person who ever could claim that, and that was our Lord Jesus Christ, who walked for 30-some years here in in a human body as the very God who created this world that we enjoy. Only to be put on a cross according to his Father's will, to pay a price, the payment of sin for our sin, for those who would come to believe in Christ. He paid his blood. He died in our place, in my place, in your place. He wants you to cry out to him. Even this morning, as we bow our heads and our, close our hearts, open our hearts to the Lord, Lord, we just pray, Father. We thank you that we have a hope. 
Lord, that is uh, steadfast, that's sure, that is anchored, not in who we are, but it's anchored in you. We rejoice in that. We rejoice in the fact that as believers, when guilt comes, that we have a means of dealing with it. We don't just have to put up with it, but we have to realize who we are in Christ. Lord, I pray for those who might be here this morning who do not know Christ, do not know our Savior. I pray that you would work a mighty work of salvation in their hearts, that you would somehow prompt them to cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to know this Jesus that I hear of. Help me to taste of his forgiveness and his love and his peace and his mercy. Transform my wicked heart. Bring me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. As believers, I pray that we might understand the task before us, even as we leave this place here today. That there's many people who have yet to trust in the Savior. And it's our duty, it's our obligation to leave these four walls and to go out and to preach the gospel, to share the good news with those whom yet have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. Whether they respond or not is not our business. We're told only to go and to share and to, to preach the gospel. And when they respond, to make disciples, to baptize them. So we commit ourselves again today, Lord, to you. And we do so with thanksgiving because the truth is such a blessing. I just pray that we would be faithful in our Christian lives and living it out. In your son's name, we pray. Amen.